Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Um. I did want to say, too, like uh, of the things that we're celebrating, uh, some of you may have, it, you know, this, 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 this word is, is relatively new probably to a lot of us, a lot of you, um, just because it has not grown in popularity until this past year. Um, but I want you to know that we as a church, we do celebrate, and we are grateful for the, this word Juneteenth. Uh, maybe you've seen it swirling around the news or social media, but like... Um, just, if you don't know what that means, maybe you've heard, it's basically this just summed up in a nutshell. Like when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, the slavery was over, slavery wasn't over yet. Um, for the next couple of years, slavery was still happening in the state of Texas until the federal government stepped in and snuffed it out. And so uh, Juneteenth, June 19th, um, marks the day that slavery was officially over in the United States of America. And we celebrate that. I celebrate that that was the end of one of the most horrific eras in American history, I am grateful um, that we are no longer a country that participates in that. Um, that is a godless, wicked thing. Um, we have a long ways to go when it comes to healing the divides of racism in our country, but I tell you what, we're a whole lot further than where we were um, many years ago, and we're gonna, be, we're gonna keep driving forward as a church family because we believe that the gospel is what unifies us. We believe that it's Jesus that came um, so there's no, no longer Jew or Greek or Scythian or slave or free. It doesn't mean that our diversity isn't valued in the kingdom of God, but it means it's demoted in importance because the gospel kicks down the walls of hostility that stood against us. And so now we are, we are one body of many parts, but I tell you, like, diversity is celebrated in heaven so much so that Revelation even tells us that the kings of nations one day in heaven when we're there are going to br bring what, what the Bible kind of refers to as strange offering of, of worship to the Lord. The reason why it's strange is because you and I are going to be sitting there thinking, man, I didn't know you could worship God like that. It's going to seem strange to us. And I tell you what, for, for the people in the remote bush of Africa, when they're bringing their offering of worship to God in the kingdom of heaven, the way we worship may seem strange to them, but it's going to be the body of Christ celebrating the glory of God for all time. And so we celebrate those small wins along the way. We celebrate Juneteenth for sure as a church family. Um, we are grateful. We continue to pray towards the end, uh, to pray towards the, the day uh, that the Lord uh, just diversifies more and more our church leadership, um, the stage here at GBC, um, because we, we value really our experience um, on this side of heaven to start practicing for heaven. Listen, if you don't like people that aren't like you, you definitely won't like heaven. You're probably in the wrong place. You know what I'm saying? Like we want to start practicing for glory now. And the best way to do that is learning to love one another and be surrounded around what is right and good and true in the word of God, worshiping together, enjoying the diversity of culture and life that God has created here on this earth and doing so to bring honor to God and to serve one another. So that's what we're going to be about here. And I'm glad that you're a part of that here. And I hope that more and more will come that are equally as committed to that unifying work of the gospel with us. We're going to be talking about that some today as we look at this Acts chapter 28. Now, this is the last chapter of the book of Acts. Some of y'all have been with us on this ride for several months. Um, and as we've been going through the whole book of Acts together, like as we land in Acts chapter 28, we kind of get some concepts that pop up in this chapter that help us summarize 
the whole book of what we've been learning through uh, Acts together. And so hopefully you've landed there uh, in, this, uh, in, our, in our study this morning. Uh, here's what happened. We're just going to focus in on these first about six verses of chapter 28 this morning and look and see what God has to say to encourage us today. So Pastor Cam did a brilliant job last week of kind of framing this up, taking us along the journey of when the Apostle Paul was um, standing on trial after trial after trial, um, contending for his faith. It was cool to see how the Apostle Paul did. Like one of the common threads, if you'll notice, in those last handful of chapters was he was standing on trial in front of all these powerful people that wanted him dead, but he just kept telling the story of what Jesus did in his life. He, he didn't get scholarly with them. He didn't start Bible thumping them. He didn't dive into the deep throes of theology. He just kept telling them, like, this, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And that reminds me, man, you might not know the scriptures backwards and frontwards. You might not be a Bible scholar, but, like, your most powerful gospel tool to use for the sake of expanding the kingdom of God and making disciples is the story that God has accomplished and accomplishing in your life. Like, the best sermon that's ever been preached in all of gospel history was, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Like, you cannot contend against the story of a changed life. There is no argument against that. And so as Paul's standing on trial, he continues to tell his story and what God had done to him on the road to Damascus and blinded him and how Jesus spoke to him and transformed his life. And he literally went from killing Christians to making more of them. It's a powerful life change. Well, he gets thrown onto a ship with a whole bunch of other prisoners. They're carting him all the way back to Rome, a long ways from where they were during his last trial. On the way to Rome, the ship runs aground on a tiny little island called Malta. It breaks up into pieces. They all escape. They all barely survive. Those that could swim, swam. I can't swim very well. Apparently, I learned that last week. That's probably why I'm so sick. I think I drank half of Lake Jackson in my little quarter-mile swim. And, uh, and then those that couldn't swim, they jumped on pieces of the ship. They finally made their way to shore. And here we get to Acts chapter 28, verse 1. It says, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness. Man, I want to be known as a church that shows unusual kindness. They showed unusual kindness because they, they kindled a fire when, when they probably should have just attacked us and saw us as a threat. Instead, they kindled a fire and they welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold out there. And so Paul, when he had gathered a bundle of sticks and he put them on the fire, a viper jumped out, a poisonous snake, a viper jumps out because of the heat of the fire and fastened itself to his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, one another, no doubt this guy must be a murderer. Obviously, he did something for that to happen to him. Though he has escaped with his life from the sea, justice, or some of your Bibles may even articulate for you, the goddess justice. This would have been one of the, one of the little G gods that the people on the island of Malta worshipped. The goddess justice was the goddess of vengeance. They're like, oh, karma got him, basically. You know what I'm saying? Like, the goddess justice, even though he survived the sea, the goddess justice isn't going to allow him to live. And he, however, he shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm, and they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune had come upon him, they changed their minds and they decided that he must be a god, little g-god. We're going to stop right there 
for the point of the conversation this morning. We'll finish the rest of the chapter next week. But like as I was reading through this just over and over again, I started to see just these six verses here. I was just kind of seeing that the even though this really happened in the Apostle Paul's life, what I was seeing was the unique parallels that it has to the declaration that God has made about his church that we've been seeing through the book of Acts, the past, present, and future work that he plans to do in, through, and as his church. And it started out like this, man. They, he's gathering up wood for the fire, stoking the flame, and all of a sudden a snake jumps out and fastens to his hand. Uh, just for the sake of this conversation, if we're looking at this story almost like an analogy, like let's, let's, just, let's view the people on the island as like, you know, the people of the world. Let's look at the Apostle Paul as an example of the church, all right, who we are, the body of Christ. And the snake is, guess who? The old slippery serpent himself. Interesting that this very strange little story pops out at the end of the book of Acts as we've looked at the picture of the church of Jesus Christ and how it was formed and founded and ignited by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to the end and we see this strange little story of the snake jumping out of the fire and attacking Paul. It just reminds me, like, even though nothing happens to Paul, like, it reminds me, man, that we, we have an adversary, the old slippery serpent called the devil himself, constantly in a position of trying to attack, but what we see right here, just a reminder real quick, is simply that even though he's going to continue to attack and those fangs may hurt, his bite's not fatal anymore. He's been devenomized already. Even though the attacks continue to happen, problem is it's going to sting for a second, but he can't take us down because Jesus told us that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't be able to stand against it. But he's going to continue to attack, of course. Now, interestingly enough, when the people of the village saw this attack on the Apostle Paul, they start throwing the blame game around. And look who they blame first. Paul? Must have been something he did. Snakes don't just jump out and attack people, right? Must have been something he did. Man, I see that all throughout history. It's like, man, when the enemy fires an attack against the church of Jesus Christ, oftentimes the world steps back and says, must have been something y'all did, you hypocrites. See, I told y'all, that's why I don't go to church, full of hypocrites. And to which I want to say, duh, that's why we go to church. You should probably join us, you hypocrite. That's why we gather together, man. It's a hospital for the sick, not a museum for the saints. We're not trying to pretend like we got all this together. And I know there are Christian people around the world that do. They try to act like kings and gods, but man, that, that, that's not the church, man. Most of us, we recognize, man, we're just beggars trying to help other beggars find bread. We're just trying to find our way. Man, we need Jesus to come and transform us and rescue us and to pluck us out of darkness and to transform our lives, man. We need him. We need him. So yeah, the church is full of hypocrites, but that's why we get together. Because we need him, and we need one another. That's the only way we're going to heal. You know, as if that wasn't enough, they take their eyes off the fact, well, it must have been something Paul did. And then they also, do you see where else they give credit to the, to the attack for? Oh, well, it's either something Paul did, or it's the goddess justice. It's karma that came back and got it. It's the goddess justice that arranged this whole thing, or both. I mean, isn't it like not just the world around us, but us too, like being quick to give credit to our lesser gods, thinking that that's the solution to something that's go, gone wrong, particularly something that's gone wrong within the body, just, man, a little money ought to fix that. 
You know, if we, if we could get the right king on the throne, if we could get everybody to vote for the right politician, we get the right king on the throne, then that'll fix all of our problems too. I tell you, the people of God thought that back as far as 1 Samuel. When they convinced God that they needed a king, that he wasn't enough, and God kept telling them, uh, I'm telling you, you don't want to go that route. I'm, I'm a good king. But no, we want a king. We need the right one sitting on the throne so everything can get better, and it's been downhill since then. And we still think the same thing that the people of ancient Israel thought. We still look to our lesser gods to be the solution to some of our greatest problems. But you know what's ironic about this whole situation with the snake bite is like, while they're pointing fingers at all the reasons why this happened, did anybody happen to notice that the one thing they're not pointing fingers at? What? Yeah, because snakes don't just hop up and bite people from time to time. Yeah, um, the snake is the one that the attack Paul attacked Paul, but nobody seems to be noticing that it's the snake's fault. We're blaming it on everything else, everybody else. You know that that is what the slippery serpent, old devil, tries to do with us, don't you? He tries to fire attacks into our lives and at the body of Christ, and like his mission and all of that is for us to see something else as the problem, and something else as the solution. And nobody took the time to blame the snake. Uh, l- let me remind you what the word of God says as declared over his people in church, Ephesians chapter 6. We are not at war against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6 says we are not at war against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of wickedness and darkness. That's where the war is. It's the snake that keeps firing the attacks. It's the snake that keeps causing social breakdown in our community, in our country. It's the snake that keeps calling, causing controversy within the body of Christ. It's the snake that keeps calling, causing so much hatred. But we're blaming everything else for the problem, and we're ascribing the solution to everything else, but really it's the snake, and it's always been the snake all along. But just like those people were missing it, the old slippery serpent. Interestingly enough, like Paul, they thought he was going to drop over dead, but he doesn't. Um, as we see this kind of analogy playing out in, in the life of the church, well, it's because Jesus told us that he was going to build his church, the gates of hell wouldn't be able to stand against it, there would be nothing to take it down. And interestingly enough, when things got really strange, like Paul doesn't drop over dead, and now the, the, the villagers in the, in the, on the island are shocked. They're over here looking at Paul, and I was expecting them to say, okay, after they saw Paul survive this snake bite, then they changed their mind, as verse 6 says, and they decided to worship Paul's God. But that's not what happened. They changed their mind, and they decided that Paul must be a God. This has happened throughout church history, too. Every once in a rare while, the church of Jesus Christ gets an opportunity to shine. Something so staggering happens in the world, in the culture, and the church of Jesus Christ, because it is rooted, it is stable, it is founded on the word of God, it kind of merges to the top. I'll give you an example. When 9-11 happened, man, church attendance like tripled, just like that. When things got so messed up, people started looking to the church as the solution. It's happened before, it'll happen again. But interestingly enough, like these people were deceived as much as, man, some of the folks in our world would be deceived too when you start to look at the church as the solution. We're not the solution. Preacher ain't going to have magic words to fix your life. 
You can do all the church rhythms and disciplines perfectly. You can show up on Sunday mornings. You can get in a small group. You can serve and give in foreign missions. You can go through all the paces and yet your life not be changed and transformed. And you'd be wondering, like, man, where's God? Man, I thought if I do all the things, God's supposed to change my life. Hey, this is a reminder, man, the church is not God. We are not the solution. Grace Bible, on our best day, we are a pointer to the solution. All of our programs and all of our sermons and all of our songs and all of our small group gatherings and all the meals we have at our table around with our neighbors, like, on our best day, we're just a pointer. We are the roadmap that points to the king of glory that can bring real healing and real peace and real comfort into people's lives. But they're only going to find that in Jesus. Man, do not put your faith in me. Do not trust in me. I will let you down. Many of you I probably have already. Put your trust in Jesus. Find your healing and comfort from him. I love this little bit in verse 5. I jumped over it just because it's such a cool picture of what we have to hope for after the snake attack. It says the apostle Paul shook the snake off his hand back into the fire from which he came. Man, and I'm reminded of the hope that we have that the day is coming. The day is coming. That Jesus once and for all for all time, is going to fulfill the promise made in Genesis chapter 3. We were told in Genesis chapter 3, when God pronounced judgment over the serpent, he told the serpent, you're going to be nipping at the heel of my people throughout history. You're going to bite their heel over and over again. You're going to be an aggravation to their life and your story. You're going to be nipping at my heel, but there's going to come a day that I'm going to send one that is going to crush your head. And that day's coming. And I'm reminded when Paul flings that snake back into the fire for which he came, Revelation reminds us that one day, that serpent that's been nipping at the heel of the body of Christ since the beginning of the foundations of the world is going to have his head crushed, and he's going to be thrown back into the fire that was created for him to begin with. That's going to be a good day. It's coming. So hold fast to the hope that you have in King Jesus and the work that he is doing in and through you and as you. We have an adversary that's constantly biting, and it is painful, but it is not lethal. Life is going to be rough. You have an adversary that hates you and hates the fact that you want to follow the Lord. And so he is constantly trying to latch himself to the body of Christ. But there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day that his head's going to be crushed and done away with once and for all. And we can cling to that hope. It's coming. Now as we look at this passage of scripture, like just this little verse, or this little section of, of history, what happened in Paul's life, and we just see how it kind of parallels to the bigger story of Christ and his church and the igniting of his church and the life of the church of Jesus. It kind of leaves us with these two questions that we're going to grapple with today as we sum up over these next couple of weeks um, what Acts has been teaching us. Uh, for those of you that have come through the whole journey of the book of Acts, none of what we're going to talk about today is going to be new news to you. Hopefully, it's just going to give you a, a head bob to say, yep, yep, that's what I was picking up. But here's the two questions that we're going to be left with here at the end of the book of Acts. Question number one is, what is the church? And question number two is, who is it for? Acts forces us to answer these questions. So let's wrestle with those this morning. Let that resonate in your dome for just a second. What is the church? And if you're home watching online, it's probably underneath me somewhere. What is the church and who is it for? 
Let that soak into your bones for just a minute. Sorry, I didn't mean to cough in the microphone, but y'all got a better deal than the last service because I sucked snot right into the microphone. I tried to shut it off, time it up, and the thing, there's like a second delay, and I, I missed it, but y'all got the better version of the two. Now, let's start with what is the church? Now, we've seen through the book of Acts, man, this thing started out as a grassroots movement of a whole bunch of people that had no idea what they were doing. They were clinging to the promises that Jesus made to them. They were remembering the life and the work that Jesus had displayed throughout his life. And they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit that came and dwelt with them, in them. That was given to them as a gift of God and like the same Holy Spirit that dwells within us. But it, it was just a small group of people. I'm talking, you know, there wasn't many. It was just a little over 100 at the beginning of the book of Acts. And these people, by the way, they, they weren't zealous and excited to tell the word about, world about what they heard or what they read. Like these people had been so transformed because of who they saw. These same group of people just a few weeks before, when Jesus went on trial, they cut tail and run, bruh. Even his closest friends weren't going to stick around for that party. They knew they were going to lose their lives. And then we fast forward just a few weeks after that. Now these same group of people, a little over 100 folks, are willing to give their lives for the sake of expanding and spreading the message of Jesus. Somebody didn't give them a better sales pitch than what they heard before. They saw Jesus alive. They spent 40 days with him, walking about Jerusalem, having meals with him, being in large crowds of people. Jesus resurrected publicly. He was around people so that they knew that God was here, that God was alive, that he had conquered death. And these people were waiting in Acts chapter 2, waiting and praying before they started to do the work of ministry because Jesus had told them to. He says, wait until I send the helper. Don't do anything yet. You're too fragile, too frail on your own. You're going to run out of energy and zeal and passion on your own because it's going to be hard. So wait until I deposit my Holy Spirit into you. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended upon them like fire. They began to speak in other language. They began, they were empowered through the Holy Spirit. And now these same people who were fearful of the gospel just a few weeks before now were willing to give up their lives. And it wasn't just that group of people. In the first few centuries, we're talking about what is the church. In the first few centuries, there were millions, m m millions of people who gave up their lives for the sake of furthering the gospel. This isn't the first people group in history, nor would it be the last people group in history that were killed because of what they believed. But there was something different about Christianity than, let's say, for example, the Jews at Holocaust. There had been religious genocide that had happened throughout history. But this was the only religious group in the history of the world that they were being killed because they refused to shut up. They could have just been quiet, camouflaged Christians and Rome would have left them alone but because they continue to share the gospel with people. Because when people renounce and reject their lesser little g gods in Greek mythology and turn to Jesus, the economy started to collapse. Society started to unravel because people were repenting and turning to Jesus as king. And so over the first few centuries, there were millions of people that lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. 
If you've ever been to the catacombs outside of Rome to see the tombs of the Christian martyrs, man, it is sobering to see these tiny little tombs of children who just wouldn't shut up about Jesus. See, the gospel survived and made it to the 21st century United States of America, not due to the health, wealth, and prosperity of the church of Jesus Christ. It got here on their blood. And on the fact that they would give up their lives. And there has been no people group in the history of the world like that. This must be the real deal. But by the time we get to 313 AD, the Roman, the new Roman emperor, his name was Constantine. Constantine became a Christian. The very Roman empire that was trying to stamp out Christianity now has a Christian emperor. So guess what happened? Christianity gets legalized, yay, and then it gets organized, all right, cool, and then it gets way too organized, and then it goes off the rails. We're still suffering from that even today. As Christianity grew in popularity, it grew in power, and it grew in power to the point that it had forgotten, the church of Jesus Christ had forgotten who they were. Thank God for guys like Tyndale and Martin Luther for calling us back to repentance, to the word of God, because by the time we hit the third and fourth centuries, Christianity was so powerful, we started creating more rules. Surprise, surprise. By the fourth century, the the word of God was being chained to the pulpit so that people could not have access to it. Scholars and scribes, who sought to translate the ancient language into the common vernacular of the day were executed. Did you catch that? The church was killing people for trying to translate the word of God into the language of the people so that they could understand the word of God for themselves. They wanted you to just trust the priest. Just trust him. He'll tell us what God says. And something happened. What was once unexplainable had become institutional. What was once the most powerful movement that the world had ever seen had become an establishment. And when Jesus told us that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it, Jesus specifically chose a word. The word was ecclesia. Say ecclesia. Ecclesia refers to a purpose. Ecclesia means a group of people gathered around a common purpose in community on mission for that purpose together. That's what an ecclesia is. But by the time we get into these early third and fourth centuries, like the German word kirch started to slip into the common vernacular of the day. And what English word do you think we got from the German word kirch? Church. And kirch has nothing to do with movement or purpose. A kirch is a place, it's a building, it's a structure. Even the way we talked about the things of Jesus change. The book of Acts has reminded us, and I also want to remind you again this morning, that this building is not the church. You are.
Man, you can lock the doors of a church, but you can't lock the doors of an ecclesia. You can burn churches to the ground, but you can't stop the ecclesia. Hey, newsflash, this is not God's house. What kind of cold medicine is that man taking up there? This is not God's house. You are. And just to make sure we knew that, the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, when the debt of sin had been paid for in full, the veil of the temple, the holy holies, holy of holies, the veil of the temple, the place where God dwelt in the holy of holies, the veil tore from top to bottom. He tore it himself. He was just declaring to everybody that that was moving day for him. And he told us time and time and time again that he was no longer dwelling in temples made by human hands because he was going to take up residence in the human heart. And in order to do that, he had to make you more holy than the holy of holies. He only dwells in the holiest of places. And so Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection was enough to make you, yes you, even you and me, holy. So that God would take up residence in us. You may not see holy when you look in the mirror. You may not feel holy. You sure enough don't act holy. But God has declared that you are, and he moved up in to you through his Holy Spirit. Yeah. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. Gathered together around one common purpose, the gospel mission of the good news of Jesus. We are living in community and on mission together, come what may, no matter what the world throws at us, to let the world know that there is a king and his name is Jesus. And he longs for them and loves them and wants to invite them into this forever family too so that their hope can be secure, so that their sins can be forgiven, so that heaven could be their, etern their, their eventual place in the glory of God, with the glory of God. That's good news. That's what the church is. Now it leaves us with, well, who's the church for then? I don't know about you. I grew up in a military family. I've lived all over the country. Had to go to all the time going to different churches. I spent several years in the music business leading worship in churches around the country. And one common thread that I was noticing, not, not all of them were this way, but one common thread that I noticed a lot throughout a lot of the churches that I was visiting throughout the country is that, like, man, most of the churches in the U.S. of A. were churches designed for church people. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, some of y'all can relate to that on some level. You know, it's like, man, they have their big signs like, welcome. You know, the big marquee out by the road, it says, all are welcome here. But like the sermons that they were preaching would never say this. And the people would never say this, but like just the attitudes of the people and the congregation, the messages that were coming across the stage, like it was almost as if they were saying, all are welcome here as long as you learn to walk, talk, and act like us before you come. 
Because we don't want messy people in here. It makes our super saved people feel uncomfortable. Don't come in here smell like alcohol. We're going to get the deacons to move you out. Don't come in here addicted to something. Don't come in here with your marriage on the rocks considering divorce. Like, y'all need to leave. Figure that out before you come back. We don't want to, like, we don't want to mess up this nice little museum we got. And that was a message that I was hearing. That's a message that I heard so many times growing up. But the funny thing is, it's like, man, the answer to who the church was for was revealed in the songs that we sang all the time. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, Fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Wretches weren't welcome. We sure like singing about them. Amazingly, amazing grace had no place in churches designed for church people. The casualty of that was grace. And it was almost as if, like, you had to become a hypocrite in order to participate. Because, like, vulnerability and transparency, definitely not something you want to risk in a group like that. They'll put you on blast real quick. They'll have you step down for the choir in a second because your life isn't perfect and shiny like they want it to be. It forces hypocrisy. And the casualty was grace. And so I tell you what has happened within these last 15 to 20 years, there has been a new emerging of churches. Many of it referred to as the emergent church. They wanted to push back against that because they saw the hypocrisy, the wrongness, the godlessness, how unbiblical that was. And so there's churches popping up all over the country that are for everybody, no matter what belief or behavior you have. All are welcome. not realizing that these new emergent churches have committed the same sin as these long-time established institutional churches have, and that's picking bits and pieces of the scriptures that go along with their personal preferences and how they feel. And what happened in the emergent church movement that we are living in today is what the casualty is truth. The casualty is grace for churches designed for church people, but the casualty has been truth for churches designed for people that can just believe what you want to believe. Jesus is for you. And so as we figure out who the church is, we need to be reminded, yes, man, Jesus is friend of sinners. Yes. Man, Jesus experienced so much criticism for 
having meals with people like prostitutes, tax collectors of the day. So yes, man, all are welcome to come and experience Jesus, but Jesus never stepped into a room full of people, no matter how broken, how wicked, how wounded, without inviting them to surrender. This wasn't about him learning to comply with our preferences. This is about him inviting us to lay down our preferences. Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. And we see when Jesus was introduced at the beginning of the book of John, like what the picture of the ecclesia was meant to be, what was meant to be our driving force in John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he was full, full to the brim, like full of grace. Yes, he is, like so much grace, it's scandalous that even wretches and sinners will be allowed to be coming to the presence of God to be made clean and made whole. It doesn't matter what your rap sheet is, what your criminal record looks like, what, what the, the trail of sorrows that you've left behind in your life. Like, he has so much grace, it far extends your ability, far outreaches your ability to run from him. So much grace to the brim. But he says he's full of grace and truth. So much truth that even though he accepts us as we are, he loves us enough not to leave us that way. And just like good, good daddies do, man, he disciplines us, man, he points out our error, our hypocrisy. Man, he loves us enough to be patient with us in those spaces of grace in our life as we are learning to submit all the stuff of life to Jesus Christ. Man, he was full of grace and full of truth, 100% all of the time. Well, so that reminds me, like we as an ecclesia, as a church, man, we're going to be a church for really saved people. And I mean really, really saved people. You know what I'm talking about, like them double-dipping Christians that even come on Wednesday nights save people. You know what I'm saying? We're going to be a church for them folk. Man, we're going to be a church for really, really lost people too. And I tell you, it's going to be uncomfortable for the lost people to be hanging around the super saved and the super saved to be hanging around the super lost, but we're going to figure it out. Because we're going to be full of grace and full of truth. Just like our leader, the head of Christ, that Christ who is the head of the church is. And so, yeah, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable along the way, but like, we're going to gather together with all walks of life in this building because this is an opportunity in all of our programs and all of our offerings because this is an opportunity for us to allow people to see Jesus no matter where they are. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ no matter where you fall on the spectrum of faith or sin or whatever you came from. This is why we're here. This is what Jesus came for, to seek and to save the lost, man. But that's referring to our church, our establishment, our building, our facilities, our programs. Yeah, that's what we're going to be about. But, like, this isn't the church we are. You know what our ecclesia, our movement is going to be about? 
Well, Jesus told us, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. People that don't look like you, that don't like the things you like, that aren't anything like you. We're going to go and make disciples of all nations. And I ain't talking about packing a bag and moving over to the bush of Africa with Lauren, which, by the way, we're sending her off next week. I'll make sure you're here next Sunday for that. I'm talking about some of us don't need to pack a bag to go make disciples of all nations. You just need to walk across the street with a plate of cookies. Start there. Man, it's easy for us to send all of our missions overseas when the mission is really right here in front of us. I was talking to Jake when I was in Africa in the bush, man, just talking about how moved I am by global missions. But I told him, like, man, God has affirmed and confirmed to mine and Ansley's heart that our mission field is the United States because I believe with all my heart that we are becoming one of the most hostile places in the world to the gospel. We've heard it before. We've been hurt by it. We ain't interested. Church has done messed it up so bad. That's because the world has seen the church as a church and not an ecclesia. The ecclesia is irresistible. The message of hope and good news is irresistible and unstoppable. And that's what we're going to be about, making disciples of all nations. And we're going to wait. We're going to wait with anticipation and hope with our eyes to the sky because there's going to come a day when King Jesus is going to come back and take his bride back to be with him. And I cannot wait. When finally, once and for all, that old slippery serpent is going to throw, be thrown right back into the fire that he came from. That's going to be a glorious day. And it's coming. Let's pray together. Lord, have your way in us. God, I know it's going to take the submission of each individual to trust you as Lord and King and trust you to use their life for kingdom mission. But just as a pastor of this church family, Lord, I, I submit us to you, that you would use us for that purpose, that you would break into our rhythms and the walls in our lives, Lord, to transform our minds, to long for the things that you long for, to be about what you're about, and to be a part of the movement, the only hope for the world, and that's Jesus. Well, give us courage that is yours, Give us peace that is yours, and we await for the day that you come and get us. In Jesus' name.